Welcome again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're joining us this week. Uh, I'm going to return to the study that I was doing on end times prophecy. We took a break last week and really were excited to have my son uh, on the program last week. I hope you got a chance to listen to his uh, great uh, ministry of church planning and the wisdom that God's already given him and experience that he has in church planning, and so that was last week's episode. But I want to go back now today and uh, continue on this series called Understanding the End, Uh, not only because prophecy is such a big part of Scripture, but mainly because of the time we're living. I think anybody uh, who has any kind of spiritual discernment at all knows that something is really happening in the world. I mean, there's always been uh, terrible things happening. The world has fallen. There's sin. There's Uh, all kinds of ungodliness that's always happened, but we see it on a scale, uh, I believe, unlike any other time in history. And so this makes even more important the subject of the end of the world and end times prophecy. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. So we have been doing this series. We've spent about five episodes already. This isn't going to be a long series, I'll have to tell you, to do justice to a subject as big as eschatology or end times prophecy Uh, you really have to take it step by step, layer by layer. I told you in the beginning, in the first episode or so, that I'm going to approach this in a chronological uh, order. In other words, I think the best way to study prophecy is to study it event by event by event. Now, I want to remind you, especially since we took a week off, that I am approaching this subject from a pre-millennial, pre-tribulational view of the end-time events. I admit that is not the only position uh, held by Bible scholars, Bible theologians, commentators, and and so on, Bible teachers, Uh, but it is the best one I feel fits into everything the Scripture says on the subject. No one can answer every question, no one can explain every verse uh, prophetically from the Bible, no matter what position they hold. So don't ever fall into this idea, well, one position has all the answers. I don't claim to have all the answers, okay? There are some areas uh, that are kind of gray, that are not black and white, and uh, of course, all of us are going to have to leave those areas to God, and, and eventually we know when God uh, brings us into His presence and gives us perfect knowledge in His kingdom and on a new heavens and new earth, we're going to have greater understanding of all these things. But right now as Christians, having the Word of God, having the Holy Spirit in us, uh, it is our duty, it's our obligation to look into the Scriptures and come to what we feel is the best a scenario of bringing all the scripture together. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means everything the Bible says on a subject, you have to break it up into parts, into segments, and bring them together and see what they say as a whole. And I think the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of the coming of Christ is the most literal uh, account of the text. Let me just stop and say we know there's symbol Uh, symbolism, and there's allegory and parables and types in the Bible. We understand that. Uh, But unless a scripture or a text shows itself to be uh, 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 typical or symbolic or parabolical, uh, we should not interpret it that way. If the Bible says, for instance, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we don't make those first chapters in Genesis uh, symbolic. 
as if it really didn't happen in six literal days, okay? And that's somewhat, I think, what happens with Bible prophecy is because it's such a big subject and there is some symbolic content to it, I don't doubt that, I don't deny that, but uh, setting aside the clear symbolic uh, passages like in the book of Revelation and Daniel and some other places, I think we can still bring together a very literal uh, look at prophecy from the uh, view of Old Testament Israel, the church age we're living in now, and the actual coming of Christ uh, that we are studying. So having said that, I told you I believe that the coming of Christ, when I say the second coming, it's actually in two phases. And we started to deal with that last week or two weeks ago, pardon me, uh, in looking at this idea of the rapture, okay? We covered the signs that I think put us in the end times. We studied that for like four episodes alone, just going over some of the signs or reasons why we believe the Lord's coming is near. Uh, but then we started two weeks ago to look at this very pivotal event. It's kind of like the domino that's going to knock them all down after that. And that is what's called the rapture. Now, again, people are going to already uh, claim, well, there's no word rapture in the Bible. <laughs> I didn't claim there was a word rapture in the Bible. I believe the teaching is in the Bible, okay? So don't get hung up on titles and words. Uh, there's a number of titles and, and terms that theologians and Bible scholars have put on things that aren't in the text itself, but they, they are used to sum up uh, and, and to bring together an entire teaching uh, for sake of making it easier to, to label and define. And so the rapture, though the word's not found, the teaching is. And basically it teaches that the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is going to catch up. That's where that word rapture comes from. We read the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 16 and 17. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So last week, or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, I keep saying last week, two weeks ago, we began to uh, discuss the rapture, and I didn't get all the way through it. I began to just basically show you that the rapture, the first phase of the Lord's second coming, is different than what I believe would be called the revelation, or the actual literal appearance of Christ in the sky, coming on the clouds to literally stand on the Mount of Olives and set up his kingdom for a thousand years uh, in Israel from Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. And that, with that in mind, I want to go back uh, and then talk some more now about the rapture and, and what it means. I've just given you some general ideas, and I want to talk about why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, remember the word tribulation uh, is a term used generally in the Bible to mean any kind of period of cataclysm or judgment or so on, but there is a specific use of this word when it comes to end times prophecy. Uh, many scholars have called it the Great Tribulation. Uh, it's simply a period of seven years, and I'm going to hold off in explaining why we think it's seven years till I get to the actual period of the tribulation itself, but I have to include it here to at least explain why I believe the Lord is going to come in the rapture prior to uh, the tribulation. 
And that's what I want to do today and kind of explain why I think the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. And thus, that makes my approach to this mean that the rapture is imminent, meaning it can happen at any moment. Nothing has to still happen. There's nothing that God has to do first before the rapture can happen. We are seeing all the signs fulfilled. We've already talked about that. We looked at the nation of Israel, which to me is one of the biggest ones of all. And I have told you that because of Israel and the Jewish people returning to their land, that to me sets the final piece of the puzzle in place for the rapture to take place. Now, again, now I'm going to go into why I believe the rapture will happen next and then following the rapture will come this seven-year tribulation period. Again, there are men who believe in a mid-trib, mid-tribulational view that he comes three and a half years after the tribulation. There's some who hold this post-trib view or after the tribulation. I believe the best way to look at Scripture and bringing all these things together is to see that the Lord's going to come back before the tribulation. Now, let me state some principle, some things about principle itself that I think teach this. And the first one I want to get into is the fact that God has always uh, seemed to... uh, honor a principle in his dealings with his people uh, that goes along with this pre-tribulational thinking. And that is, when God is pouring out his wrath on uh, the wicked, on the world, okay, he's always exempted his people from that. He's always delivered his people from that. And we're not talking about persecution by the world. You say, well, a lot of martyrs died. Christians died throughout the dark ages. That's true. But that wasn't God's wrath being poured out. That was the wicked, the the satanic world who hates Christ, whom he himself was killed by the wicked. All of us as sinners put him on the cross. We're not talking about the fact that Christians have been exempted from any bad things happening then. That's not the point. We're saying when God has poured out his wrath that has come from God, that he has exempted his people from that. And let me let me give you some examples, and I think there's many, but in the Old Testament, we see some beautiful examples. The main one I could tell you is the story of Noah. Noah and the flood. Here God says in chapter 6 of Genesis, he tells Noah, you know the story. I'm not going to go into detail, but he simply says, Noah, uh, the world has become corrupt by sin. Every evil, uh, every thought and imagination of men's hearts are evil. I'm going to destroy the world by a flood, a worldwide flood. And I want you to build an ark uh, to save you and your family. And two of all the air-breathing animals, seven of the clean animals. You know the whole story. Uh, there's a principle there. God did not let Noah and his righteous family, that were saved people, that said Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He did not let Noah perish in the flood. That's just a principle. Now let's go on to the story of Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. We can definitely all agree that Lot was not the most wholesome believer and was not a good testimony of a holy Christian, but the Bible does call him just Lot, meaning he was a justified man. He was saved. Uh, even though he got himself in a bad position and he shouldn't have even moved into, into Sodom and been a part of that city, here's the main teaching, the principle I want to, again, remind you of. That is, before God's angels, who were sent down to declare judgment on that city, they were sent to really ultimately go get Lot. Remember Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis? Uh, basically pleads for Lot and pleads for the righteous. Says, Lord, if you know if there's 50 righteous in the city, will you destroy it? He goes all the way down to 10. Lord? Uh, If there's 10 righteous in the city, will you destroy that city? And the Lord said, no. 
See, uh, it's, it's not God's uh, character. It's not in his plan, his attributes to destroy the righteous with the wicked. I mean, this is a principle all throughout Scripture. Uh, why doesn't God send Christians to hell? And why would he never do that? Because there's that principle. God always delivers the righteous uh, and punishes the wicked. And so he delivered Lot. The angels take Lot and his wife and two daughters out of the city, though his wife turned back and became a pillar of salt. That was her own choice. But here's the principle. It still stays. Now, another great example of this, and this is a principle that I'm going to use to back up this teaching of the pre-tribulational rapture. Do you remember the plagues of uh, Moses on Egypt as God sent Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh to say, let my people Israel go, and you know the story. Uh, Pharaoh wouldn't listen, and God sent a series of ten plagues. Do you know something is very important about those plagues that sometimes we forget? God purposely told Pharaoh and told the Egyptians that he would separate his people, that they wouldn't suffer from these plagues. They wouldn't fall under the same judgment or the wrath of God by these plagues as the Egyptians would. He begins by referring to this in chapter 8 of Exodus. Let me read you uh, the words here. And this is God speaking through Moses, uh, telling Moses what to say. And he says, and I will sever or separate. I'm reading from the King James. Maybe a little bit different in your uh, version, but it should be close. Let me read it. And I will sever or separate in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, Israel, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. So those are really important words. God's saying, I'm going to show you a lesson. I'm going to teach you a lesson, Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. I'm not going to punish my people. I'm not going to send flies among them like I'm going to send among you. So you'll know that the Lord, he is the true God. He's in the midst of the earth and he divides his people from the wicked. Well, I could just go ahead to chapter 9 to the next plague, the fifth plague of disease on the beasts. And you can see where that is fulfilled in these words. In chapter 9, verse 6 of Exodus, And the Lord did that thing on the morrow. And all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And so here again is this principle I want to remind you of, that God is separating the righteous from the wicked. And this is how I want to apply this to the rapture. Uh, to me, to, to even entertain the thought that God would allow Christian people to go through the worst period in all of human history uh, when it comes to his wrath being poured out on the world. And there's other, uh, other bad things happening because of the Antichrist and all the other things we'll talk about. But let me just stay with this idea of God is going to unleash his wrath in such a terrifying way. Let me use Jesus' own words. I mean, the most shocking uh, verses about the tribulation come from the lips of our Lord. And he says them in Matthew 24, that great chapter on the second coming. I've referred to it already so many times, but let me read it to you. Uh, Jesus said in verses 21 and 22, For then, look at it's a time frame, then is a time word. For then shall be great tribulation. Maybe that's why scholars have called it the great tribulation. That's fine such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elects, the saved, 
sake, for the sake of the saved, those days shall be shortened. We'll get into those who are saved during the tribulation later, and that's. But I want I want you to see how amazing that statement is. When Jesus said, "This tribulation will be worse than any time before or ever could be, even after it." Wow! Imagine him saying that. These are from this is from the lips of our Lord, who himself sent the flood. He's God. He was there. He sent the judgment of the flood. He was there to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He was there to send those plagues on Egypt. And he says that this great tribulation that's coming, that he's talking about in Matthew 24, is going to be worse than any other time. So for me to entertain, to believe that Christian people, the righteous, us that are saved now, say in, the, in this time, and, and that we would go through that in any way, I think is horrific. Now, let me use some verses, I think, to back it up. I've given you some principle. I think there's some verses that establish this as well. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Remember Thessalonians 1 and 2 are much about the second coming and prophecy. But here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Spirit. It's all about the second coming. The context is the second coming, so I'm not taking this out of context. Listen to what he says, verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does he mean by wrath there? He can't be talking about the wrath of, of hell. Uh, we know that God doesn't send Christians to hell, uh, and that would even fit the context anyway. The wrath is God's wrath being poured out during the tribulation period. And then he says, but to obtain salvation. Now, that word salvation sometimes misleads us. It could be uh, a little hard to understand because every time we see the word salvation or saved, we think of being born again. We think of spiritual regeneration or the new birth. But that word simply means to be delivered. It doesn't mean actual born again salvation there. It means, uh, they, but to obtain deliverance or rescue or escape by our Lord Jesus Christ. So God has not appointed. That means it's not set in his plan. Appointed means it's not been ordained. It's not been set down by God for his people to go through wrath, the wrath of the second coming, the wrath of the tribulation, which is really when his wrath is poured out. There's no doubt about it. Now, one other verse that I think is a beautiful one to use that teaches a pre-tribulational principle to the rapture that Jesus will come before the tribulation to take his people away. And that is Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Here is the Lord writing to the church at Philadelphia. And we'll talk about those seven churches in a minute because they're very important in the, in the time frame of this. But listen to what he says. Catch this, this phrase. He says to the church at Philadelphia, verse 10, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, which is basically they've been faithful to God and his word. Let's just say it that way. I also will keep thee... From the hour of temptation, you could say tribulation, same idea, judgment, the time of God's wrath, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Wow. So the Lord is saying that his principle is intact here. He's not going to make people go through uh, the tribulation period where his wrath will be poured out. 
Now, let me bring together some other thoughts here. Um, not only do we see this principle, but we see examples. You know, people say, oh, this, this rapture, there's been many uh, well-known Bible teachers who scoff at and laugh at and mock this idea of a rapture. Eh? What do you mean God's going to catch all these people up? It's going to kind of be, what, an invisible, instantaneous thing? You mean millions of people are all of a sudden going to disappear? Uh, what are they saying? Is if God can't do that? Are they saying God can't do that? I hope they're not saying that. God can do whatever he wants. If he could send a flood to destroy perhaps billions of people in the days of Noah, he can do whatever he wants. God is not lacking power to rapture every one from the world and millions and millions if, if that's the number. But people will say, well, you know, that's, that's so unusual. Well, that's not unusual. Uh, remember Enoch and Elijah in the Old Testament? Here's a catching away. Hey, at least even though it's on a single basis of a single person, an individual, it's still pictured, isn't it? Here, God, all of a sudden, one day, he'd been speaking with Enoch, uh, and Enoch walked with God, and the Bible says he was not, for God took him. <laughs> Just like that, God takes him up. Nobody saw him again. Same with Elijah. You know the story in 2 Kings. God is, uh, uh, God is coming down to get Elijah on the day that Elijah and Elisha, his, his protege, Elisha, is going to take over after Elijah, and all of a sudden, the Bible says God sends a chariot down and, and whisks Elijah right into heaven. And so for people to say, you know, this rapture, it's just far-fetched. It, it, it's, it's, no, it's not. The Bible teaches that God did it on an individual basis. Why couldn't he do it on a, on a massive scale? I want to deal with one um, argument against the rapture that really needs to be put to rest because it's a false one. And it's a, I think it's a straw man that people put up to try to uh, deny the rapture or the whole idea of a pre-tribulational view. And that is that we as a pre-tribulationalist who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, that Christ is going to come and take us before the tribulation, we in some way are trying to escape suffering. We in some way are looking for some escape clause, uh, some escape out of suffering. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we are not saying, I am not saying as a pre-tribulational teacher that Christians will never suffer and that we won't go through a lot of suffering. As I already mentioned, Christians have suffered. Hey, I'm a, I'm a great uh, lover of church history. Anybody who reads and studies church history will study the martyrs. I've read uh, documents about the martyrs. I have that great document I referred to back in our series on Baptist history called Martyr's Mirror that tells you about thousands and thousands of martyrs who died horrifying, agonizing deaths. So please don't use this argument that people who believe in the rapture believe you're not going to go through any suffering. I didn't say that. Yeah, we will suffer. And, and there's no one can guarantee how much suffering God will allow his Christian people, uh, his, his saints, his family to go through before the rapture takes place. I'm not saying that we're, we're looking to get out of here before any bad things happen. Hey, the world's already getting dark. And it's already a place of suffering, even though American Christians still aren't suffering nearly like Christians, say, over in China or some Islamic country uh, where they have no religious freedom and many of them are being killed. There's martyrs dying for the faith right now. We know that. But just to understand, there's no way to, to, to put together this idea that if you believe in a rapture before the tribulation that you're in some way claiming we're not going to go through any suffering. We will. In fact, I'm of the opinion that the Bible also teaches that right before the coming of Christ, remember I taught it back in the signs that we'll see an apostasy, a falling away from the truth. Things will get worse, not better. Oh, I might throw in, by the way, just for the sake of, of this point, 
that the amillennial or postmillennial position that basically claims, I'm putting it in a, in a concise, short statement, but they basically claim that Christianity is going to uh, take over the world and we're going to usher in the kingdom by uh, a Christian world that Jesus will come back and reign over. I think that's preposterous. I think the world has shown that we're never going to change this world ourselves. The only peace this world's going to have, the only real righteousness that the world is ever going to know is when Christ, the Prince of Peace, the righteous judge, shall rule over the world himself from Jerusalem. So uh, I think the apostasy, the way the world is going, if you read Matthew 24, I told you the sign that iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, uh, things are going to get worse and worse. And so the post and amillennial position that things are going to get better and Christianity is going to win over the world, I think is, is totally ridiculous. I don't think it's even has any shred of, of evidence to it, not only scripturally, but also in reality. And so the world is getting worse and worse. But again, we don't claim that Christians won't go through some terrible things before the rapture. All we're saying is in a pre-tribulational view that God will not allow us to go through the period where his wrath will fall on the world in an unprecedented way. And so we're going to be taken out of this world. Now, a couple of last things before we're done with the rapture, because I want to try to bring this to a close, because by next week in our episode, Lord willing, I want to move on to another subject. But also I would say about the rapture that it fits the time frame of several important texts. Uh, let me go to Matthew 24 again. I just keep going there because it's just such a, it's a well that never runs dry, as they say. Uh, there's so much teaching in here. But let me go through uh, this passage in Matthew 24, verses 27 through 30, and you'll see how the rapture fits into this and, and the time frame fits into the order I've been talking about. Um, he says, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, when lightning comes out of the sky, because, of course, lightning is not loud. It's the thunder that follows it. Lightning is quick. It's, it's instantaneous. It it's, happens amazingly quick. For wheresoever, he says, verse 28, the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And so, in a sense, he, he's telling us here that there's this coming of Christ. He calls it the coming of the Son of Man be. What's the instantaneous part? as one shines from the east to the west. Uh, I believe that could definitely picture the rapture because then following that, he talks about judgment and the birds gathering together, the eagles, the carcasses. Because then he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be uh, shaken and then shall appear. So he tells you that after the tribulation, and immediately after, he's talking about the end of it, the end of the seven years, and all this judgment. It does climax, and we're going to see that climax in what we call the Battle of Armageddon, but it's going to be an all-out climax, like a uh, like the grand finale at a, at a fireworks display on the 4th of July. That's what's going to happen at the end of the seven years. But listen to the order here. Then he says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, again, that verse, verse 30, is speaking of his visible return. That's not the rapture. You sure can't fit that into 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, or 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. They don't fit. They're not the same coming. 
That is at the end. So I'm saying the rapture precedes it. Now, let me go to the lesson about the seven churches, which I think is a very interesting lesson. Uh, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, a great book. We know it's all prophetic. It's a tremendous book. And, and I'm considering maybe going through a verse-by-verse study on our podcast later of the book of Revelation because I've been so enamored by it and love the book and been studying with our people a number of times uh, here at our church. But anyway, um, if you know the breakdown of the book, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but just to tell you that the second and third chapter of Revelation are the seven churches, okay? And Jesus gives a lesson to each of the seven churches, okay? And in chapter four, after he's done giving a message, and we'll say more later on about what he says to those seven churches and what what symbolic significance they have. I think they do have symbolic significance, but here's the here's the key. I think when you get to chapter four, everything changes in the book of Revelation. Uh, no more are the churches mentioned. You know the word church or churches is never mentioned again in the book of Revelation after chapter three, verse twenty two where it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You never hear about the church again. I think verse 1 of chapter 4, and this is how I teach it, and I believe it's right, that at the end of the church age, or the period of the, of the church's work on earth, that's what church age means. It simply means God working through the ecclesia, the called out assemblies all over the world. That's the church age. But when that period is over, I think the rapture happens, and verse 1 of chapter 4, I think is at least an allusion to it. Listen to what it says. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, I'm not the first one to ever come up with this by any means. Many good, I think, pre-tribulational prophecy teachers have, have also thought that this verse at least alludes to, it's at least a picture of, this uh, this rapture where John is caught up, a door's open, a trumpet actually sounds, and he comes up into the presence of God in heaven. Because in chapter 4 and 5, you have the uh, throne scene uh, where John is shown things in heaven there on the very presence of God. I think that's at least a picture of that. And the fact that you never see the church mentioned again. In fact, the only reference to the church again, and it's not the word church will be used at all, but I think it's referred to in the last invitation of Revelation chapter 22. Whereas he's getting to the end of the book, he's finished his main teaching, the uh, the writing of the book is concluding. Uh, John is, is giving the end of this book to us by God's design. And it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. I think the bride is the church, the Lord's church, uh, and they're involved in inviting all sinners to come to Christ. Let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So that is definitely the church, but isn't it, isn't it telling? I think it's a great lesson that we never see the church mentioned from chapter 4 all the way to that last reference to simply the bride. And I think it's because the churches will be removed, all of God's people, uh, all the family of God. I like to say the rapture of the saints because I think the church is the local assembly, as we talked about in our lessons on ecclesiology before. You can go back and cover those on the podcast if you have time. Uh, But I think that the rapture of the saints will have taken place and the Lord's churches are not necessary. They won't be on earth because our reward is, is to escape that wrath. Remember, we're not appointed to wrath, but to escape and to go in the presence of the Lord. Well, 
let me finalize and end our subject by just stating how uh, I don't I don't even have a word that can describe it to the extent it needs to of how amazing how catastrophic how world changing this event called the rapture is going to be can you imagine friends now let me let me just do a little guesswork here and I, this isn't being specific but how many Christians do you think are in the world today? I mean, people have guessed. I'm just going to do my part and give my opinion. Um, if you take all the Christians in the world, I mean, I'm talking about truly born-again, regenerated people, not people who claim to be Christians, not people who go to church on Sunday or every once in a while. I'm only talking from the biblical standpoint of a true Bible Christian. There may be, let, let's just say 500 million, okay? Uh, that number, you know, could be wrong. But uh, from what I hear about the numbers of Christians in the underground church in China alone and other places in the world, I'm just going to put a number of 500 million. Now, another thing to add to this mix I haven't talked about yet, and that is that I believe since God, here's a good way to look at it. Let me go back and say, anybody that God would take into his presence at death right now, I think is also going to be taken at the rapture because it's called a resurrection. Um just like the first resurrection, we could say is of the uh, of the body uh, and the soul. Uh, this is this is basically we talk about at death when you die, you're in the presence of the Lord. Second Corinthians five eight says, but the rapture is then again kind of the same thing. It's a resurrection. We're changed. We're caught up to meet him in the, meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So. Think of it this way. The same people who would go to heaven if they died today. Let's, let's name some of that group. Well, let's start with, let's go from the womb on. Uh, I believe life starts at conception. I think the Bible is very clear on that. So every conceived child who may be in their mother's womb at the time. I know this is going to seem far out, and you can believe what you want. I'm just telling you, you ought to do some research and see if this doesn't line up. I think it has to line up. Hey, does a baby in the womb go to heaven? Of course they do. We believe they do. At conception, life starts. So if a baby dies by a miscarriage, a stillbirth, is aborted, God forbid, that little life is in heaven. I think they're a full adult, by the way. I don't have time to get into that. It's another subject. But So all those in the womb. How about children up until the age of accountability? I think the Bible teaches that uh, until a person comes to a knowledge of their sins, that they're accountable to, to, to God for their actions, that they understand responsibility of their life uh, from right and wrong, the conscience that God gives them and how they act towards that conscience. I think until a young person, and I'm not even put an age on it, I think it's impossible to put a, an age on the age of accountability, but let me just say, Anyone under that age of accountability, we believe, goes right to be with the Lord in heaven, right? Of course they do. Remember David, when he and Bathsheba conceived that child and by adultery, and God ended up taking that child's life because he had to preserve David's life to continue the line. But that child that died, uh, David said, you know what? Uh, I'm a, uh, he, he said, I can go to him. Um, after he had fasted and, and, and pleaded with God to save the child, once the child died, David got up and you know what he did? He ate, put on his clothes and got cleaned up and they couldn't even believe why he did it. And he said, hey, nothing I can do now, but I can go to him later. David believed he was right in heaven. I believe he is. So all kids under the age of accountability are going to be raptured too. Well, let me add another group. How about all those who are mentally unable to understand the gospel? Oh, I believe in God's mercy and grace for sure that God would not punish them. 
Uh, just like you wouldn't punish a, a child who can't understand the gospel and their own sins before. is not old enough to repent and turn to the Lord and have their lives changed. And so every mentally retarded, mentally uh, handicapped person who cannot understand the gospel, and you say, well, uh, how do we know how, how mentally handicapped they had to be or how unable must they be mentally? I'm going to leave that to God. I don't know. Uh, God knows what they can understand and what they can. Let's just leave that with God. But I'm saying, if you add that group, okay, let's say all babies in the womb, all a, uh, children of the age of accountability, all those mentally innate, unable to understand the gospel and be saved, Let's add them to the 500 million of present living born-again Christians, perhaps. Let's put a number on that. I don't even know what that other number. Let's, uh, for the sake of just keeping the numbers easy to follow, let's say there's a, million, or a billion and a half with a B. There's 8 billion people on planet Earth right now, right? Close to it, very close to it. 8 billion. Well, half a billion Christians, let's say, maybe 1.5 billion between the unborn in the womb, the uh, eight under children under the age of accountability, and those who are mentally unable to be saved, let's say 2 billion. Now, I'm, I'm going to make this argument, I'm going to close with this. Can you imagine how catastrophic, how unbelievable this event will be where potentially 2 billion people, many, many right from their mother's wombs, will be taken into God's presence. And that, I think, is going to uh, set in motion the catastrophes, the, the all-out chaos and turmoil that will bring the Antichrist to power. And he's going to be one of our main uh, subjects to study in the next period known as the Tribulation period. Well, let me just end by reading 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, we know that this rapture and the coming of Christ is going to take the world totally unaware. And that's why I appeal anytime I teach prophecy or anything through the book of Revelation and so on, I appeal to sinners. If you're listening, turn to Christ before it's too late. If you have heard the gospel and have not turned to Christ and the rapture happens, you'll be left behind. Just like that series of books said and those movies that were produced. Even though I don't agree with the whole uh, movies and the books themselves, they're man-made, but the principle's there. You'll be left behind and be lost forever. Paul says, for yourselves know perfectly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3, that the day of the Lord, that's all the events, including the rapture and all the way to the end of the millennium, in my opinion, that's not the 24-hour period, it's a whole period of time. The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. In other words, you're not prepared for it, and he brings bad things. He, he is not wanted. For when they shall say, look at how Paul separates they and we and us. They, that's the unsaved world. For when they shall say peace and safety. Isn't that exactly what the world is, is trying to promote? Every government, the UN, uh, everybody's trying to bring peace and safety to the world. It'll never happen. In fact, the world is more dangerous than it's ever been. He says, for when they shall say, the world shall say peace and safety. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He uses the birth of a child after the labor pains. In other words, you can't stop it. Once a woman goes into labor, her baby's coming. She can't stop it. They shall not escape his wrath. And so I plead with you, friend, if you've never understood the gospel, if you never had a time in your life where you turn from your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to follow him, then please do that before it's too late. Because just like you could die at any moment, 
I believe the rapture could happen any moment and you would be left behind. Well, remember our motto, conviction for truth and compassion for people. God bless you.